0: Hey, good morning everyone. If uh, you, you missed it, my name is Jonathan, if we haven't met before. Um, and this morning we are continuing our series, "The King We Need," where we're looking at the Gospel of Matthew, looking at the life and teachings, birth, death, resurrection of Jesus. Um, and last week, Joe took us through Matthew chapter three and four, which were about the start of Jesus' earthly ministry. So he looked at his baptism, and then he's going into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And this week, we are in three chapters of Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is more commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is arguably one of the most famous speeches, talks, public sermons given, not just in the Bible, but in the whole of human history. Um, it was like, had a, a major impact on social activists like Martin Luther King, Mahatma Gandhi, um, Bob Marley, his first single, I found out yesterday, was called Judge Not, which is a direct quote of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Barack Obama, when he was um, President of the United States, needed some kind of analogy to compare the U.S. economy to, and he likened it to the, the parable of the builder who built his house on the rock. Um, and so that was also quoting from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount as well. It's where you'll find the Lord's Prayer. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Ask, seek, knock. Um, Pearls before swine, that's in there as well. There's so much in the Sermon on the Mount that will be familiar for lots of us. And so as we start, I just want to give a quick disclaimer, which is that most of the Sermon on the Mount is going to go absolutely untouched this morning. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was the the minister and preacher of uh, Westminster Chapel in London, which is actually now a church um, which is part of Commission, our family of churches, He um, spent 60 Sundays going through the Sermon on the Mount over three years, and we're we're not doing that. We're we're doing it in one Sunday. Um, And so really two things for that. One is read it for yourself. My greatest encouragement would be, or if I say anything of value this morning, would be go and spend some time reading the Sermon on the Mount. It would take you like 10, 15, 20 minutes, depending on how quickly you're going through it. Apparently, Mahatma Gandhi, who was a Hindu, read the Sermon on the Mount twice a day for the last forty years of his life. Now, I, I did a quick Google to see whether that was true. It was on the Bible Project and um, podcast. I don't know, but the point is, hey, we can find some time this week to read the the, um, the Sermon on the Mount. And so, what I want to do today is, rather than just go through every verse, is really look at what's the big idea, what's the big picture, what is Jesus's message, what is the message of the kingdom that he is giving in this sermon. And really the big idea that he is trying to get across to us is all about true life, about flourishing life. We could call it lots of different things. We could call it the good life. We could call it living your best life. We're basically, we're asking the question, and Jesus is asking the question, well, what does it look like to live the good life, to experience true life, life that is full of joy and peace and contentment and wellness and satisfaction? I am... Um, so I was preparing for this preacher last week, purchased this book. It's called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. And it's by Marie Kondo, The Japanese Art of Decluttering and Organizing. Life-Changing Magic and Tidying Up are not two things, which you often hear in the same sentence, are they? But the, um, the first line of the introduction caught me. She says, in this book, I have summed up how to put your space in order in a way that will change your life forever. I mean, that is a statement and a half, isn't it? Like, I'm not quite sure that I expect that she does it in the book. I'm sure there's lots of helpful tidying tips in there as we start a new year. Um, But the key thing is that she is trying to, obviously sell her book and I'm sure make quite a bit of money out of her Netflix series and other stuff that she does as well. I'm sure she's doing very well for herself. But she's trying to sell the book by saying, "Listen, if you learn the Japanese art of tidying up and if you can get your space in order, what's going to happen is that you're going to experience like life change. Your life is going to be flourishing." That's what she's selling to us. Ultimately, she's saying like the good life consists in or at least part of it is having a, a tidy house that you love to be in and is not cluttered and is just super nice all the time. Um, And actually, she's she's not the only one in doing that. That's the whole point of advertising, isn't it? Whenever you watch an advert for anything, what they are selling to us, and we're absolute suckers, so we take it in a lot more than we think, is, hey, listen, the way to get the good life, to get flourishing life, to get true life is to have X, Y, Z, or look in this way. As we start a new year, lots of us will be starting to think of this way. We'll be looking over the year ahead and thinking, right, if I'm going to experience true life, flourishing life, this year, like, what does that look like for me? We might be thinking, hey, that, that's to do with my health. So I'm going to drink more water, eat less junk, exercise more, feel better about my body, and then life will be flourishing. Um, or it might be about control. This year, I want to keep my house tidy, or I want to break habit X, Y, Z, and then flourishing life will be mine. Or it might be to do with how we use our time. So we say, I want to have less time on screens and on social media or on Netflix. I want to spend more time with my family and my friends. I want to go out and enjoy the natural world more. And that is going to help me to achieve flourishing life. Now, I'm sure all of those things can contribute and bring a certain measure of of joy and peace to our lives. But actually, it shows us that the pursuit of true life is not a new thing. That is absolutely not a new thing. That is as old as the Sermon on the Mount, at least. And it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus cares a lot about human beings flourishing and experiencing true life. It shouldn't surprise us because in John 10 verse 10, a verse that lots of us will know, he says, I have come that, as in like the whole purpose or one major reason for me being God in flesh, living as a human being among the people that I've created, he says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. What we need to hear from Jesus in twenty twenty-four is that he offers us life. And it's important to remember that he's not ambivalent um, or not bothered about the life that we experience with him in twenty twenty four. In fact, he is the person who is most committed to our joy and satisfaction and experiencing of true life um, in the year ahead, like even more than we are. His earnest desire, his eager desire is for us to experience the life, the joy, the peace, the satisfaction that comes from a living relationship with him. And so to that end, we read the story this morning of how he went up a mountain and he sat with his disciples amongst a crowd and he sat down and it says, and he began to teach them. And he teaches them um, in the sermon on the mount. I think I've got a page wrong. No, don't worry. I'm okay. And this is the Sermon on the Mount. And so basically what I want to do is just ask two questions this morning. True life, flourishing life, whatever we want to call it, the good life. How do I get it? And then what does it look like? And that's just, that's where we're going. We're going to be dying about quite a bit. We're actually going to start at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and then we're going to go back to the beginning, and then we're going to look at a couple of bits in between. So it's going to be really handy if you've got a paper Bible or Bible on your phone in front of you just to see where we are. Some of the passages will come up on the, bo- on the screen um, not all of them will. And we're going to start at the end. So we're going to start with this question, how do we get true life? And Jesus' ultimate answer in this sermon, in the whole Bible, is that Jesus gives us true life by giving us himself. And so we're going to start by reading um, from Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. The Sermon on the Mount is one of those helpful passages in Scripture where we get told what the big idea is. So, you know, like there's that parable in Luke that starts off um, and Jesus told his disciples a parable to teach them that they should always pray and never give up. And then you're reading the parable after that like, oh boy, like I understand what's going on here because I just got told. And actually, it's the same with the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus gets to the end of the sermon and he says this. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine... With a great crash. In this parable, Jesus is telling us, and actually, the, the whole of what he's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and all of his words are supposed to point us to the fact that if we want to experience true life, there is no way that we can experience true life except in a relationship with Jesus Christ. He tells us that just a few things in this parable. I think he's making the point that everyone wants to experience true life. Like there are no human beings who go through life and say actually no I'm not committed to wanting to enjoy my life and have peace. Sure we might like lose sight of that, but actually that is the the ultimate goal. That's the reason that we do pretty much everything that we do is because we're trying to find that peace and joy and satisfaction. And then Jesus tells us that every single human being builds their house on something right? So he's got two categories of people. The first category is people who hear the words of Jesus and put them into practice, and they're the people who are wise and build their house on the rock. And then there are people who either guess don't hear the words of Jesus at all or don't listen to them, or those who hear it and then don't put it into practice, and then they are like the foolish man who builds their house on sand. And it's really important that we pay attention to that because it means that all of us, so this morning, whether we're Christian or not, are going to be building our homes, our houses on something, right? So, And I would also warn us at this point that just because we're a Christian, it doesn't mean that we're necessarily building our house right now on the rock. Sure, that might be kind of ultimately what's going on, that Jesus is our, our true rock, whether we are walking really close with him or further away. But actually, day by day, hour on, hour by hour, we can slip into thinking, hey, I'm building my house on the rock because I'm a Christian and I go to church and I read the Bible. But actually, we can then slip very, very, very easily into building our house on the sand. And it's important that we note that because Jesus assures us that in life, wind and rain will come. The difficult parts of life, suffering in life will come. We're assured of it. And actually, it's the wind and the rain that is going to show what we've been building on. Because okay, lots of our life, we might be building our house on sand and it looks absolutely fine. And then what's going to happen is suffering comes, hardship comes, trying circumstances come, and then what we're building on is going to be shown for what it is. Appearances can be deceiving, apparently in the Middle East, um, I guess at the time of Jesus and probably now. There are times like during the dry season where dirt just hardens up so much because of the lack of water that it would appear like rock. And so you could build your house on it, and it would probably seem like a really stable foundation. But then as soon as the rainy season comes, it just turns to mud and it slides away. We've got to be careful as Christians that we're not going through life building our house on sand, because otherwise we're going to get to the point where suffering and hardship comes, and then the house, it comes down, comes down with a crash. Um, my favourite film of 2023, I actually, we watched on the last day of twenty-three, we watched it on New Year's Eve, and it was the Barbie movie, um, which can divide opinion. I personally was a big, big fan, just really enjoyed it. We um, rented it for 48 hours and watched it New Year's Eve, and then I had a serious conversation about whether we watched it again the next night, because I was just like, this is a brilliant piece of, of cinema. Obviously don't agree with everything in there. Or even lots in there, but um, there's this wonderful scene towards the end of the film where Ken is in Barbie's dream house and is talking to Barbie, um, and basically Barbie is is rejecting him and is basically saying she's not interested in him, and Ken cannot fathom this and has an awful breakdown. And the reason he has a breakdown is because his whole existence has always been Barbie and Ken. And so when Barbie rejects him, he he can't take it. And so he starts crumbling and he just can't manage it and has this awful experience because he's like, what does life look like if it's not Barbie and Ken? How can I take this rejection? And here's a good illustration of building your house on sand because actually he'd gone his whole life living very happily in Barbie world or whatever it's called. And then actually as soon as Barbie rejects him, he realizes actually... That what what's my life about? I have no purpose outside of this plastic doll, um, which well, yeah we're not Ken, but the point is we're going to see that actually if we're building our house on the sand, it's going to be removed at some point. So this morning, I think it's important that we check ourselves. Right? We just we kind of want to pray and ask like God, if I'm building my house on sand, would you show me? Two Corinthians thirteen verse five says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, test yourselves. I think we should always be going and asking, like, what am I building my house on? Is Jesus really the rock that I'm building on today, this hour, this week? Or actually, have I started putting my hope and and all my trust in in my family or in my work or in the approval of others, what they think of me? And finally, what Jesus has got to show us is that he is the one who gives us true life. So he says, actually, that if you want to be the one who builds your house on the rock, who experiences this true, like, firm and flourishing life, then you've got to hear what I say and do it. But I think we would just want to say there that actually it's more than just hearing the words of Jesus and doing them. Because actually, like, hey, Gandhi, who was a Hindu, he heard the words of Jesus and he did quite a lot of them. But he didn't know Jesus Christ. He didn't experience that true life. I think, actually, if we look at this same parable, but we look at it when Jesus tells it in Luke, it's very helpful for seeing what Jesus' point is. In Luke, when Jesus tells the parable, he says, As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They're like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And it's that bit, everyone who comes to me. Actually, Jesus offers us free life in abundance And actually, we've got the opportunity to experience true life if we come to him and we enjoy relationship with him. There's nothing that we've got to do in order to enjoy this relationship with him. We've not got to get our act together. We literally just have to come to him by faith, saying, Jesus, I am trusting in you. And then what happens is the Bible describes it as being in Christ. We enjoy life with him in Christ. We can ask what it means to be in Christ. Well, One picture the Bible uses is a famous one, which you can find in John 15. It says... Jesus says, I am the true vine. Remain in me, and I also, as I also remain in you. I am the vine, you are the branches. And I guess Jesus' picture of what flourishing life looks for all of us in um, 2024 is that He's the vine, we're the branches, and actually all of our life, our joy, our peace, our contentment, our satisfaction, our stability, all comes from the life and the relationship that we enjoy with Him. Actually, that all comes. And it's out of that place of enjoying relationship with Jesus, enjoying life and vitality in Christ, that actually we can then hear what Jesus says to us, and we can put it into practice, and we can do it. John 17, verse 3, Jesus is praying, and he says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Actually, the life that we've got is knowing Jesus Christ, enjoying relationship with him, and then out of that, hearing what he says, putting it into practice, and knowing we've got his grace when we then inevitably stumble and fall and start building our house on the sand again because we're prone to slip away from doing what he says. And the question then is, well, if that's how we get true life, if we get true life by coming to Jesus and hearing what he says and putting it into practice, then what does it look like And the key thing we've got to know is that we've got to expect that true life experienced in Jesus will be unexpected. All right? There'll be times, pretty much all of our Christian life, if we're really experiencing life to the full, we're going to expect that it looks very different to our expectations. And this is where we're going to go to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So if you're in Paper Bible, hop to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount by giving what we call the Beatitudes. And they are a series of statements all about what flourishing life looks like. They all, they all say blessed are. And blessed are, you might have heard different things that can be translated out. It could, could just mean blessed or blessed, or sometimes it's translated happy are. Probably the best word, the most helpful English word we could use is, is flourishing. Like flourishing are the poor in spirit. It's given the idea of they're like a, a tree, is is stable and is, is by water and there's fruit and there's life and stability. These are the people, not necessarily who are happy because it says, blessed are the mourners, but these are the people whose lives are flourishing. And we'll just read them together. It says, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We've got to see from these words of Jesus that life in the kingdom of God is going to be totally backwards to the way that the world would have life. Right? So if we're going through, and if, if we were going to get everyone together in the UK, and we were going to write a list of statements and ask, well, what does flourishing life look like? What does true life look like? There's no chance that pretty much any of those attitudes, kind of st- facts of life are going to be included in that list. We would be much more keen to say, you know, flourishing are those who are, who are likeable, who are attractive and warm, um, blessed and flourishing are those who are successful and have you know got wonderful lives and wonderful homes and actually none of those things are included in Jesus's list he says blessed are the poor in spirit like the humble those who know that they need a savior and they can't do it all in their, by their self. blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted blessed are those who show mercy, who are pure in heart, who are peacemakers, who are persecuted. He even says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And so Jesus' point is, listen, if, if you're going to have flourishing life with me, you need to get rid of your preconceptions about what you think it's going to be like because it's going to look very different. And I would just want to give a massive encouragement to us this morning that if we're in a place in life where we are looking at our life a work situation, family situation, and we're thinking, oh boy, this looks so different to anything else that I was expecting. That's not necessarily a bad thing, because actually the thing which might make us feel like I am barely surviving in life, actually by, in Jesus's economy, could be the very thing which means that you are thriving in the kingdom of God like to be brought low, to know your knee, to feel weak and lowly, and God, I can't do this anymore, and I'm just holding on. Actually, that is a place where we are experiencing, in, in the kingdom of God, like flourishing, a blessed life. And so we should feel encouraged this morning. I just want to look at two specific things now that um, Jesus gives us as, I guess, signs, like characteristics, hallmarks of what this upside-down, topsy-turvy life looks like. I want us to see how life in the kingdom of God, life in Christ, is dependent, and the other one is hidden, dependent and hidden. And so, first of all, true life is dependent. I think, again, if you were going to compare what the world says about our level of dependence, dependence is not a good thing in our world. We're supposed to be self-sufficient. We're supposed to look after our needs, like the person who owns enough money to care for all of their needs and, and care for the people who are dependent on them, and the person who doesn't need support, the person who doesn't need looking after. Actually, those are the people we consider as the strong, the powerful, the people that we should aspire to be like. And actually, even for us, you know, we would say we know that we need a saviour, we know we need God's grace, and yet we are so prone to do life on our own that we think actually as we go through each day, even if we're not realizing it, we're just going through it subconsciously, thinking I can do today by my own strength. I tell you, like, if you want to know, do you think you're self-sufficient, ask yourself the question, how much do I pray? And if you do not pray very much, myself included, you've probably got a problem with self-sufficiency. You probably think that you're able to do it all by yourself because the person who actually realizes their need is a person, Jesus says, of, of prayer and dependence on the Father. And so what I want us to look at with this um, dependence is I want us to hear what Jesus has got to tell us about it and then how do we put it into action? How do we practice it like Jesus says? We are supposed to, as Christians, who are the the branches experiencing life in Jesus, we are supposed to live our lives utterly dependent on our Heavenly Father. In, um, In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, when he's talking about God, Right? He uses the word God to talk about God. I don't know what it's like in the, the Hebrew or the Greek or something like that, but in, at least to my count when I read through my Bible, God is mentioned like three or four times. Lord is in there a couple of times. Great King is in there once. And then 17 times, Jesus refers to God as your Father or your Father in heaven. Now, that is not accidental. That's not coincidence. Jesus is trying to teach us something about the way we relate to God in the kingdom of heaven if we're going to experiencing, experience true and flourishing life. God is, Jesus is trying to show us that actually our primary relationship to God, our primary attitude that we should have in all of our life, is we are children and we have a heavenly Father who cares for us and about us. If we are in Christ, then we are also children of God. Galatians 3.26 says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Jesus is our brother through faith. We are sons and daughters with him of our Father in heaven. And the sheer number of times that Jesus says, your Father, your Father in heaven, this is not just incidental. He's trying to say, listen, first thing you need to do as you wake up in the morning is get your heart sorted out that you are going through today and this week and all of life, 2024, not as a self-sufficient adult, if you like, but as a child. That's our position. What are children? They're needy, they're dependent. They need all the help they can get. They're incompetent when you leave them on your own, on their own. Actually, they need a parent to be with them and to look after them. And Jesus says, that is what you are like. You are more like a child than you think. Just think of all the times that he says, Father, I won't put them up on the screen. He says, um, like when you're practicing your righteousness, don't do it to be seen by others. Do it to be seen by your Father in heaven. He says, your Father um, will reward you when you pray in secret. Um, he says, don't babble like the pagans when you pray because they think they're going to be heard because of their many words. When you pray, just ask God because your father knows what you need before you ask him. Then when he starts off his prayer, like again, we've probably said the Lord's Prayer so many times that we lose the wonder of the way he starts it. He doesn't start it off exalted king, wonderful counselor, all of the other names, the wonderful names that he could use for God. He says, when you pray, pray like this, Our father. That is how we should start our prayers, coming with the posture of being children. And the question is then, well, how do we put that into practice? What do we do? And I think two things that we should always be looking to do every single day, regardless of whether days are feeling easy, whether they're feeling difficult, regardless of what kind of time it is in our life, we need to acknowledge our need and ask, right? Acknowledge our need. Every day we should be getting up and, and admitting, God, God I, I cannot get through this day. Without your blessing, like the very breath in my lungs is just a gift from you. It's not something I produce myself. Actually, every hour of today, I need your help. I need your favour. I need your blessing. And then we need to turn that need, an acknowledgement of our need, into asking. That's why he says, "You know, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name." And he says, "Give us today our daily bread." On the next page, um, at the end of chapter. Um, no, in chapter seven, he says, if you then know you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Like Our heavenly father knows our need. And we're supposed to just get in this this daily habit of exercising our faith by saying, God, I'm in need. Please, would you give me what I need today? And we're going to find that we're experiencing true life. We're experiencing true flourishing as we just take all of our needs and offer them up to God. Listen, if we are having struggles knowing what to pray for and get started just start by just laying whatever is on our hearts before God and saying God I need you please would you help me so life in Christ true life is involves dependence and then it's also and this is where we're landing it's also hidden so if we go through um, loads of the parab- loads of um, the Sermon on the Mount. So, particularly in chapter six, Jesus talks about giving to the needy, and then praying and fasting. And each time, there's this theme of don't do it to be seen by other people, but do it before your Father in heaven. So, I'm just going to I'll dot about through the passage, but we'll read. Um, lots of chapter six together. He starts off by saying, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them, because if you do, you will have no reward from your father in heaven. And so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then he says, And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand praying in the synagogues and on the street corner to be seen by others. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then he says, When you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Listen, Jesus like, goes hard after the hypocrites, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, who love to get the attention of other people, who love to live for the approval and the affirmation of other people. They've basically turned their faith into a way for them to get attention and approval from other human beings. And the important thing that we need to do there is not go, that's a terrible thing for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to do, isn't it? But to say, actually, that's what we're like. Like, if that is true 2,000 years ago, how much more is it true that we need to be careful, as Jesus says, not to practice our righteousness in front of other people in a world which is so keen for us, like Thomas was saying in a few moments, to exercise like our good deeds in front of other people. Like all of the world is you cover up the bad stuff and you just show people the right stuff. It is so easy for us to get into the habit of performing our faith in a way which is done to try and get affirmation from other people. I remember a time like a ridiculous example, like it just makes me cringe to think of it, but a time pre-COVID, being at the Grace Centre and um Karis was part of a tea and coffee team, and I remember just one Sunday, like very, it sticks in my mind of just going and helping with some of the washing up, and just being very aware that when you're washing up in the kitchen at the Grey Centre, the door was open at the side, and pretty much everyone can see you just walking past, and it was like this mixed feeling of like a, or like, do the washing up look like you're just you don't care about it. But actually, people can see you. People can see that you've gone in and you are doing the washing up. And I say that because I know that my heart is so easy to do that. I don't know whether that's like my gifts. Obviously, lots of my gifts involve standing up in front of people and talking like this. And so I don't know whether maybe maybe that's just a temptation that comes with preaching or something like that to try and get people to want. you. You want people to like you and you want people to say, well done and look for people to. To, to love what you're doing and that kind of thing and give you affirmation. I think probably that's not just me, though. I think that is all of us. We've all got an eager desire to say, I want affirmation from other people. Um, once heard a church leader in commission refer to it as himself as a recovering approval addict. And I thought, oh, that just puts the nail on the head for what I feel like most of the time, just like needing, like hating it when I get things wrong, really not liking it when I mess something up or receive correction, like being very prickly if someone picks me up on something at work that I'm not doing very well because actually I want approval, I want affirmation. Jesus says that is a terrible way to experience true life. That is going to make yourself miserable. It's going to make your life pretty terrible. It's utterly countercultural for, for us to go about our faith in a way which says, actually, I'm just going to practice it to be seen only by my heavenly Father. Now, obviously, other times we, you know, we pray together, we encourage each other by coming and exercising our faith in front of others, right? By sharing prophetic words or leading worship. But actually, Jesus' point is, well, what's your main thrust? What's the thing that is driving you to pray, to read your Bible, to worship, to fast, to give? Is it so that you can be seen by others? Is it because you feel self-righteous? Like, hey, I'm a great Christian because I give and I fast and I'm on 17 serving teams, whatever it is. Actually, Jesus is saying, we have got to just want the approval of our Heavenly Father. I was reading a book a couple of weeks ago that talked about the danger of slipping into doing things for God rather than just wanting to be with him. And actually, that is, again, when I read that, I was like, oh, that is just gives words to something which I feel so much of the time, like, I've slipped into, God, God is kind of somehow got out of the picture, and I'm just into this rut of, hey, I'm just doing things because that's what I do, and they've become detached from my relationship with God, you know, even like me leading a meeting, times where I can think, oh, actually, I'm getting ready to lead a meeting, and my heart feels so far away from God, like, it's become detached from my relationship with him. This isn't how Jesus lived. In Luke five fifteen to 16, it says, the news spread about him all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. And then it says this, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Actually, Jesus getting all this attention, all of this clamor from the world, and his response was not just to lap it all up. His response was, if I'm getting affirmation and approval from the world, that's more time that I need to be spending in secret with my heavenly Father in prayer and in reading scripture and in giving in a way that no one else sees and in fasting. And so the question for us then is, well, what do we do with this? How do we practice it? And I guess the answer is quite simple. We we're supposed to go and seek our Father in secret. And I guess we, we can get into the temptation of just kind of compartmentalizing this into uh, sometimes we might call it like a quiet time or a devotional time. I don't know, there's probably lots of other names, whatever you might have heard it called, like where we might read some of the Bible and we might pray. We might write in a, a journal or notebook. We might listen to some worship music, that kind of thing. But actually that is just such an important practice for us in our life with God. Lots of the time it's not glamorous. Lots of the time You know, pretty much all the time, but no one else would know about it. But Jesus is saying that's like the engine room of your life. If you want true life, it's going to be about finding that secret space with God where it's just you alone with God and you're spending time with Him. How do we then do that? Just three really quick P's to help us. Number one, we've got to get perspective. If we are going to. Yeah, go hard over wanting to spend time with God and enjoy time with him in secret, then we've got to constantly be reminding ourselves of the why are we doing it. Otherwise it just becomes like I got my, my Bible reading tick. I'm going to spend some time praying, tick, spend some time listening to worship music, tick. When actually, again, it slips into becoming detached from our relationship with God. We've constantly got to be reminding ourselves of the gospel. I'm saved by grace. I'm a child of God. Through Jesus, I have free, bold, confident access into the presence of the King of Kings that people in the Old Testament you know, can only, only dream of the access that we have into his presence. We've got to remind ourselves of Jesus' example, that if the, if the Son of God regularly withdrew to lonely places and prayed, how much more do we need to withdraw to lonely places and pray? We've got to remember that secret time alone with God is is just health for our soul. Actually, it can be the first thing that we abandon when life gets difficult. And yet, actually, it should be the other way around, that when life gets difficult and stressful, it's the first thing that we prioritize. We say, if I'm going to cut something, if I'm going to drop something, it's not going to be that because I need time with the Father in my life. We've got to keep perspective. We've got to plan as well. You do not need to plan or get in the diary to go on social media or to watch Netflix or to waste time away doing whatever you know, things you might do on your phone or screens like that. Oh boy, if you want to spend time with God, do you need to get it in the diary and do you need to plan it? it generally 90 percent of the time 95 percent of the time it doesn't just happen it's not just spontaneous it's like i'm going to make a commitment to being there this evening this morning this afternoon whenever it works to say god i'm going to be with you in secret spend time reading your word even planning like what what am i going to do in that time not just kind of saying right i'm here What do I do now? But saying like, oh, you know what? I'm going to pick this book of the Bible. I'm going to read through it a chapter a day or something like that or whatever works for you or shorter or you know, I'm going to get a notebook and I'm going to write in it and I'm going to just write out my prayers potentially if that's helpful. I'm going to get out into the woods or go and look at the ocean or I'm going to climb a big hill because I know that actually that's the time where I just love spending time with God. So we need to keep perspective. We need to plan. And then finally, we've got to persevere right? Most of the time when we're in that secret place with God, spending time with him, saying, God, I'm, I'm hungry and thirsty for you, lots of that, that can be really difficult, right? So we might go away and at the start of the new year, we've got like a new Bible reading plan or something, and we keep it up for a few days and then it just dwindles. We've got to know that actually when we're coming to that time, we've got to sometimes adjust expectations. It's not always going to be like a mountaintop experience, like I just felt God's love washing over me over and over again. Sure, that happens. But actually, lots of the time, it's just difficult, and you're in the middle of Ezekiel, and you're like, what on earth is this all about? And you're praying, and you're like, God, I don't feel like I've got the words to say. We've just got to keep the long view. And actually, if I just keep saying, God, I'm going to turn up, and whatever happens, I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to bring my needs to you. And even when you seem so far away, I'm going to still talk to you because I know that you love me. And actually, those are the times where we know it's more likely that we're going to have those times of enjoying time with him. And so, and that's where we're going to finish. I'm going to invite Alice and Joel to come back, and we're going to sing together. And as we finish, I just want us to to pray together and and ask God for that help, particularly to to spend time with Him, to have a desire for Him in in the secret place, in in the hidden place. Because it's so easy for us, again, our hearts just to drift and us to get so caught up with everything that's going on in life that we lose sight of spending time with the Father, spending time with Jesus. So if we just want to stand, I'm going to pray for us. And actually, if you've got the desire to say, God, like, my heart is drifting, I'm so prone to wander away from you, but I want to know you better. 2024, I want this to be a year where I'm experiencing true life, not because of the state of my house, not because of the state of my work, the state of my heart, but because I am spending time with you and I'm enjoying knowing your love for me. You might just want to put your hands out. I'll pray for all of us. Let's pray and then we'll respond by singing. Father, we just thank you for the wonder of the gospel. Like it is so breathtaking to consider your amazing love for us as we were singing earlier, like mercy and grace pouring out on us like mighty floods, like absolute torrents of your grace pouring down on us day by day. If we could only see, if we could only know the true extent, the full extent of your love for us, that we are beloved children in your family. When we come to pray, we don't have to babble like pagans. We're not heard because of our performance, of our many words. You know our needs before we ask them. How eager you are to have us spend time in your presence. Thank you so much for your love. You are so precious to us, Lord, and we want to ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us the desire to spend time with you day by day. More than just the the time, we're praying that we'd have a desire to be with you, a desire to spend time in your presence, to know that union with you, know that life with you. We can't do that on our own. We can't do that by willpower. We can't do that because of a New Year's resolution, but we can do it by the power of your Spirit. So would you put your love in us? Would you overflow that love in your spirit so that we want to seek you in the secret place? Amen.